0: I'm Jeff Cohen. Matthew Miller is an AI analyst who's worked in the US, Canada, and the UK. He specializes in machine learning, natural language processing, ethics, and facial recognition. I'll be the first to admit I'm not totally familiar with all the terms I just said, but I can't wait to learn more. Matt was also lucky enough to have his twin brother by his side as they grew together in their Jewish observance, and he's here today to share his story. Matthew, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. I appreciate it. I'm
1: looking forward to this conversation.
0: So all these terms that I just use makes me think that I probably should have used ChatGPT to write my interview questions.
1: Yeah, well, you're not wrong, but maybe I'll use it to give my answers as well so we can be on the same page.
0: <laughs> so neither of us had to be here today. We could have had machine learning and everything like that do the whole interview for us. Exactly.
1: Or maybe I could just send my twin brother to do the interview. We, uh, we'll keep people on their feet. People would have a hard time telling.
0: All right. So let's dive into the questions and get to know you a little bit. We like to start at all of our interviews getting to know where your journey begins. So give me a sense either kind of where your parents are from and their Jewish background or where you come into the picture and where you're born and raised.
1: I've done a bunch of genealogy research. So like many Jewish families, Ashkenazi Jewish families, going back to, let's say, great-great-grandparents, traditional Jews, people who lived in either in Poland or in England. And then as you go down to the the great-grandparents, the family, like many people who, who moved to North America, they started becoming still traditional, but but less observant, less orthodox. So my family were from Canada. All of my grandparents were born in Canada, one great-grandparent, the rest of them were from either Poland or England. And the family was traditional. So if if you go to my grandparents, many of them went to synagogue. They had different aspects of tradition. Some of them more traditional than others, but certainly all of them connected to the, the Jewish religion, Jewish rituals, to certainly the high holidays. And if you go to my parents as well, who were both born in Canada, met in high school in Toronto, they also were were connected to their Jewish faith, the Jewish religion. We went to synagogue, um, certainly during the high holidays, also sometimes on the Sabbath, on Shabbos. And we we were always proud of our Judaism. We went to to Hebrew school when we were approximately 14. I say we because it's really my twin brother and I, as we were saying in the beginning, it was very much a joint journey. We we did it together. Sometimes there are certain things I did more, he did more. There were, it wasn't exactly in tandem, but basically it really was. And it was when we moved to the Chicago area right before our fourteenth birthday that, that we started to become more more interested in in Judaism, in observance. And it's interesting. I mean, I think that oftentimes there is this person or this event or a certain group that people get involved with that leads towards observance, towards becoming Orthodox, becoming from whatever one wants to say. I think it was, it was very organic and almost certain aspects were, were more sudden. Others were, were more gradual. I remember there's a story that I probably made it more of a story as, as it went on. But I remember one time my dad asked me to mow the lawn on Shabbos on Saturday. I said, no, no, it's Shabbos. it's Shabbat, I can't do it. I think at the time it was very much an excuse. Uh, we weren't Sabbath observant, we weren't doing that sort of thing in our day-to-day lives. But I think maybe, maybe there was some spark there. And I, th- I think that with that and just sort of thinking and, and, and trying to figure out where I wanted to be in my Judaism and uh, my observance, started to become more observant. And, and over, over that year and, and moving forward, just got more connected, started learning more online, eventually got involved in NCSY, and, and so on and so on
0: now your family has a deep history in canada so what precipitated this move to chicago
1: so we moved to chicago as i said right before my 14th birthday it's really just a story of uh, the dad who gets a job in a different city we moved actually first to california so we moved when we were about seven to the bay area my dad got a job at William sonoma so a lot of great kitchenware, and they own pottery barns a fun place to work and and, and to be at for him and for the family So we were there about seven years, and then we ended up moving to the Chicago area about 16 years ago.
0: Now, you also said that oftentimes in these stories, there's a particular person who comes into your life or a particular event that begins this journey to getting more interested in Judaism and it seems like that's not how your story unfolds. So what was going on in terms of your Judaism that you and I guess your twin brother just started to say, you know what, let's look into this a little bit further. What were you feeling that made you start that journey?
1: So as I was saying, maybe there was a certain spark that when I just I thought, wait, a second, like I never I hadn't really thought of Shabbos in the past. I mean, I knew about it. I knew people did things and they, they didn't do other things on the day, but it wasn't really part of my my sphere part of what I was doing so maybe there was a little bit of a spark that just got me thinking I think probably also part of it is maybe a personality trait or just part of my just who I am that we were Jewish proud Jewish but you know we weren't like staunch reform we went to conservative synagogue I think there is this sort of in the middle level that we were at this sort of not exactly this not exactly that that maybe was a bit maybe uncomfortable for me wasn't where I wanted to be I wanted to be committed so I mean maybe that commitment could be just get rid of it if, if I'm not convinced if I don't think it's right or it's actually let's look at this let's try to figure out what this Judaism is all about what are the, the different sources the laws the the, the commitments the customs that, that I should be adhering to I went with ladder and, I, I, and now I'm just continuing the journey I mean it, it's been I'm 30 now so it's been about 15 years or so, give or take, 15, 16 years, and just continuing the journey and, and continuing to just move my Judaism forward.
0: So I'm trying to picture you as a 14-year-old kid. You're in public school, right? You, I would think you don't know Orthodox people. You want to know more about Judaism. So it seems like, from what I'm hearing, your first mentor is actually Google, like you're doing searches and trying to find information. But there's so much out there on the internet It doesn't seem like you have an Orthodox rabbi or someone really knowledgeable guiding you. So how are you sifting through all this information and trying to figure out, this is helpful, is this right, should I learn more about this, should I ignore what I'm hearing here? How do you make sense of all the information?
1: It wasn't easy, but I think that overall,
0: as a technology researcher and someone who's
1: in technology, I have very great appreciation for the technology that's out there across the board. Rabbi Google and all the resources out there were just so helpful for me to... To gain that access. And in regards to curating or sorting or filtering, I think we just found some sources that were helpful and stuck to them. So some of those sources were Ask Moses, so Chabad.org, their, I guess, sister site, a resource that they have to ask rabbis. I, I remember even, even some of the questions, I remember one of them was about like spreading on Shabbos, I was spreading. So I was, we were trying to figure out could you spread cream cheese on, on a bagel? So, I mean, most would say, yeah, that's probably fine. So it's things that, that we just were figuring out that, that could potentially be an issue, and we, we needed to find out what were the ways to do it. So Ask Moses was was definitely a big resource. And then Aish as well. Aish was a great resource. And just continuing to research, because at the time when we were first becoming observant, we were living in Glencoe, which is uh, a lot of Jews over there in the northern suburb of Chicago, but a handful of Orthodox Jews. And so they're probably one or two other ones who were there. No Orthodox synagogue nearby. The closest one is about four miles. We had gone to Hebrew school before, but at least more traditional learning was online. And then once we got involved in NCSY a little bit later, we were able to meet people in in the Orthodox community and, and get some access to rabbis and have more of a personal connection to teachers.
0: And the dynamic with your twin brother, I happened to read a book about twins where one became fully observant and the other one wanted to be fully secular and they tore around the country kind of debating the pros and cons of those two lifestyles. Your journey from what I'm understanding so far coincides with your twin feeling the same as you. So you're, you're in this together and both want to grow kind of at the same pace or are there differences in how you're pursuing this? So
1: I think there probably were micro differences maybe. And there, maybe there's certain times where he thought, Oh, I'll wear a black hat on Chavez. So there are different things that maybe he thought he wanted to do. And I, I didn't want to or not something that I wanted to do so it definitely wasn't exactly the same and at, at the exact same pace but really overall it was very much a journey that we took together and something that, that that we did together and and I think it's always important to think about the the broader family that my parents as well always very supportive and as they, they started going to a more traditional synagogue, which was conservative, more traditional. So they even started doing more things themselves, doing more Friday night dinners, going more to shul. And younger brother, as well, he's gotten involved in, in, in different things in, in Seattle and in New York, getting involved in. It's, it's hard to say, really, was that because of my twin and I? Was it just more because of the synagogue they're going to, their own community? Probably. Multiple factors, but that broader family environment was also an important part of the picture.
0: And when you think about the early parts of the journey, what are some of the first few things you took on? I would think you're doing all this research and it would probably be overwhelming to understand all the things you would be doing if you were living a fully observant life and you'd be trying to make sense of what do I do first? Is there a progression to this? So, do you remember back to those earlier years? The first couple of things you said, I'm going to try this and see if this is like a stepping stone to the next thing that I want to do.
1: At first, it was hard to some degree. I mean, especially we weren't living in an Orthodox community. At first, we we started going with my parents to their synagogue. So we would drive with them. And then we started walking there is about four miles. Then we started to go to the Chabad, which was also about a four mile walk. So certain things were more progressive. Shabbos was certainly a big one that we were just trying to navigate, figuring out how to do it, what we should be doing, how to make it exciting, not too boring, because I think that was a challenge, especially not being in an area where we knew people and, and had that community. That was difficult, but we made it work, and with our family, we, we had a nice time. It, it, was, it was a nice experience. And then I think the other one, which was something which was a progress, something that was more a journey to some degree, was, was costrous. So overall, my parents, they've always had a kosher home, there are certain things that that we, as a family, move towards more strict observance with hechshers and and making sure that there are certain things that were done that that we wanted them to do. But as I was saying before, some, this is something that they were they were supportive of. Were, were there certain squabbles about certain things that we did and and different issues that came up? Certainly, but overall, for us, it really was was nice and, and, and a good, mutually understandable relationship. There was a lot there that, that I really appreciate now after the fact. Maybe at the time I didn't quite appreciate, but I certainly do now. With Koshers, it wasn't that difficult, really. I mean, there, there were challenges maybe with going out to dinner with the family. It wasn't really something that, that we could do as easily. But Chicago, where I live, there there's a lot of kosher restaurants here. So not missing out too much. Uh, and then not myself going to non coach restaurants. What wasn't really such a big thing that I need to give up. I, I love food, but I, th- I think it was okay for me. Those are the two big ones which really stick out.
0: So as we advance your story, now we go into the college years. You know, where do you go to school to study? What do you want to do? And then how does your Judaism continue once you're out of that cocoon of being with your family and everything you were building with your twin? Now you're kind of going to be out on your own. So how do you make sense of where you want the Judaism told as you go into the college years?
1: I'd been observant at that point for about four years. Well, so I went to Israel for a year after high school. So I went to Esoteria Torah for a year. And then after that, I decided to go to McGill. And, and then in, in regards to, to the Jewish aspect and, and, and keeping my observance alive, making sure I'm, I'm still learning and, and, and keeping Shabbos. For, for me, that was something which at that point was just so intuitive, so much part of my life that there wasn't really a question about it. Uh, there was a, a question about how am I going to make sure that I'm in the most vibrant, great Jewish community as possible. So one of the things about McGill is that in regards to Minyan and, and, and Shabbos and, and Shul and all that stuff, for me, I wanted to make sure that I had just really strong environment and just a really nice Jewish life. So the first year, I lived on campus in one of the apartment-style dorms, but I wasn't really on campus too much. I was mostly in the Divimbe area, so more of a yeshivish community, hung out in the kolo there a lot, spent Shabbos there essentially every Shabbos. I just wanted a really strong Jewish life, which I didn't feel was really on campus, so I I wanted to just be in a Jewish community and be involved in that sort of life. And then I also studied Jewish studies, so different than a traditional yeshiva education, but we had a lot of really great scholars. So I continued my Jewish learning within the university setting, which I think is very helpful for me to solidify a lot of my learning and and understanding of the Jewish tradition, which I really appreciate. And it was a great environment because we had really great scholars, but not too much interest. So I had some classes with one or two people in the class.
0: And did your brother follow you to the same school or he's going in a
1: different direction? He went to KBY for a year and then he went to YU. So he wanted to have that YU education and to be involved in that sort of Jewish life. He probably would have had a nice time at McGill with me as well, but he decided to go to YU. And I, we visited each other many times on a Hasidic bus, which is a very nice, interesting experience to go overnight from Montreal to New York.
0: Now, I mentioned a bunch of technology terms and jokingly said I didn't know what they all mean. So I said those in the introduction. Does that mean that something's going on in college that's playing into this future life you're going to have in technology? Is there something that you're studying in particular or an advanced degree that you get? What happens on the technology side?
1: In some ways, I I fell into the technology research and what I'm doing now professionally. I studied Jewish studies and linguistics. And so at the point when I was in my undergrad, I thought probably I wanted to go into Jewish studies. So some sort of professor, some sort of academic career within Jewish studies. Based on different reasons and and different thought processes, I I thought maybe instead I'd go more the linguistics route, so maybe also some sort of research or or do something within technology related to linguistics. I wasn't fully sure, but that's why I ended up doing the master's in England, and I did a master's there in linguistics. And so in that case, I thought, do something language-related, probably still within the academic field and sphere. But I ended up doing an internship within AI and and AI research, AI market research, and then really launched my career within the, the AI market research area.
0: So before we get into AI, I was just thinking about the story you've told so far. So you're not born religious. You start taking an interest in Orthodox Judaism. How did that go so far as thinking Jewish studies would be the right major? You know, in my own journey, I never thought about connecting it to career. And here you are not that far along in your journey, and yet you're seeing this as a possible path at that age. So what was your thinking at that point before it sort of transitioned over to AI? I think for me, it was something which was an intellectual interest. I think there is
1: there's both sides of the of the coin. There is the interest in becoming more observant, so connecting to the tradition, to the religious observance as well as the more intellectual side of Judaism. I think in general, I have this great thirst for knowledge. Something just always drives me to learn more, to understand more. And so I think in in some ways this is no different. I wanted to just better understand the tradition and just be, be engrossed in it. And so, I mean, maybe in some other iteration that could be going and staying in Kolel, within my my sphere, my family life, there's all sorts of reasons why that wouldn't and, and couldn't work. But I think in some ways, staying in academia, studying, I wasn't sure the exact focus area, but being involved within Jewish studies and the academic world, I thought that would be a great way to just continue that intellectual passion.
0: And so you brought up AI. So what ultimately happened that you changed your thinking and said, maybe this is the career path for me?
1: It was almost a fluke. i I mean, I wanted to focus on, on linguistics. So again, probably with an academic world, have that sort of interest and stay there. So I ended up doing a master's at Queen Mary in London. The The broader story there is I met my, my current wife, we were dating, she lived in England, and made my way to England to continue to date her. We'd started dating a few months before. And so did my master's in England for that reason in linguistics. And the way I really got into AI was I was looking around trying to figure out what's next. I thought maybe at least soon thereafter I'd do a PhD, but I wanted to find some, some work at the time. And so I saw an internship, which was related to AI. I just came across it and stuck at that job for about two and a half years. Now I've been at my current job, also focused on AI for a little over four years. So I really made my way into it by, I mean, a fluke, or you could say by, by divine Providence, whatever you want to you wanna say there. And just been really enjoying it and continuing to learn and to develop and and to think about these things. There's the technology side. So currently, my focus is on B2B software within AI automation analytics. But there's all sorts of religious ethical issues, which I'm also thinking about, even if it's not part of the day-to-day job
0: and research. It's also making me think you keep bringing up AI. I spent all this time preparing questions. What would have happened if I just put your name and questions into chat GPT? How close would it have come to what I came up with?
1: Uh, that's a good question. And it could be that right now I'm actually an AI version of myself. And as I said before, I, I'm
0: a twin. So, you know, I could be AI, I could be my twin. It's it's not really clear. No one will really know. Fair enough. Now, you also mentioned that during your time in England, your wife comes into the picture. What was it like for you? You're on this journey of becoming religious. Where was she at that point when you met? Were you were you both becoming more religious or was she raised that way?
1: Yeah, so, so she was raised that way her family, both of her parents became more observant years before she was raised in an Orthodox Jewish family raised in Manchester. And we, we met at Camp Stone. So we both went to Camp Stone, Pennsylvania, lovely Mosheva Camp, part of the B'nai K'iv movement. And we, we met there. We, we were friends. We, we stayed in touch. And I ended up wanting to see if I can make it into a relationship. I, you know, had a bit of a crush on her, and we started talking, and then started dating. I moved to England, and, and the rest is history. We're now married. We've got a a beautiful little two and a half year old daughter. So everything worked out. So yeah, her, her her upbringing was Orthodox, Orthodox school, Orthodox parents, and siblings. It's been a great relationship, and we've been able to make it work. I mean, I'm observant. She's observant. We're we're living an observant lifestyle. I think it's more when it gets into the area of let's say parents. So with my parents. Not being religious, how does that work? And I think I think it really does work. They're very accommodating. So kosher home, we've spent Shabbos. There. There's all sorts of ways that 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 it is a very beautiful situation, even if it's not some sort of ideal or or something which is quote the norm. It's it's a really great setup, and and we make it work very beautifully.
0: Was there ever a point with your parents who you just mentioned the fact that you know they're not observant? So I think sometimes parents believe that this is just a phase, something that a a kid is exploring and then they're going to change like they would with anything else that they're exploring. But it takes on a little more permanence when you marry someone who's observant and now it becomes clear to the parents, wow, this is probably going to be my kid's lifestyle for the rest of their life. Do you remember some of those conversations with your parents and how much of the fact that you started dating and ultimately married someone who was religious meant to what your future was going to be compared to how they were choosing to live? I don't really think that was... An issue. And I think that by the time I, I started dating,
1: um, not quite 10 years, maybe I think I, if I got the numbers right, maybe eight years or so, where we've been committed to, to observance and, and orthodoxy. I think by that point, they understood this is something that it's not going to go away. It's not a phase. Even when we were living in their home, there were some things which came up, different things about certain observances with, with costures and things that we wanted to do, different aspects of not. Doing things on Chavez, which came up, there were things that there were certainly struggles, but I think overall there was understanding, and there was just this mutual respect that this is not something that they had raised us with with this sort of observance. But there was in in one case, one of my grandparents, he said you know, listen, maybe you can start this observance, no problem, because he, he was raised in, in a traditional uh, upbringing, even in Orthodox. He said, maybe you, you can you can do this and start this when you're out of the home, because he realized that there could be tensions, things could happen. And again, there were some, but nonetheless, I think that there was much more understanding and being able to work together, live together and have a very nice, harmonious relationship with the family.
0: Circling back to your career, in doing some research for the interview, I came across your site, com, and I saw that you found a way to kind of blend together two things that you're clearly passionate about. You've got technology on there, but also a lot around Judaism. So how did you kind of figure out that both those worlds could be connected through your site? We
1: we said earlier that I um, had an intellectual thirst. I think, think that that's in some ways connecting things, and I'm always just trying to learn more, in some ways teach what I'm learning bring things together. I think I have a sort of personality that I don't want to just leave things disparate or or have one thing here, one thing there. I try as much as possible, make connections, think about how one thing is related to the other. So in that case, and in that sense, I'm trying to think, okay, so my work doesn't have to do with Judaism. How can I think about it more? So let's say if we take the AI side of things, there's a lot of ethical issues which come up within the world of AI. So things like killer robots is one people speak about all the time on tv that's it's a thing i mean people are speaking about that it's a a challenge but other more nuanced issues like let's say that different systems are are predicting what you're going to do or maybe different issues with personalized ads there's all sorts of ethical issues which come up so i'm thinking about that and trying to think what's the connection to judaism so reading and learning different things connected to that and, and trying to i don't have necessarily so much of that on the website but at least trying to, to bring that to the fore with my own mind and, and do have plans to, to write some things, to speak more broadly about these these issues. And then the, the other thing is within the world of podcasts. So we're on this great podcast now, but I also host the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm I'm one of the hosts there. And so trying to use technology, think about Judaism, still be within the world of academic Jewish studies, even if I'm not doing
0: that in my professional life, And just trying to to live and bring everything together as much as I can. So I just wanted to give you a chance, you just mentioned it, maybe talk about a book that was featured on there or something that came up on the show that you want to share with our listeners. Yeah, sure thing. So I I
1: forgot how many interviews I've done on on the show, probably like 25. At this point, I have like a lot in the backlog. I'm sure you know about the backlog, get all these interviews that you want to set up, are setting up. So there's a lot more that I have, books that I've read, books that I need to read. There's been a lot of really interesting ones. I've really enjoyed some interviews I did with Professor Yehuda Mirsky. He wrote a couple of books about Rav Cook. R- really, really interesting stuff. Very deep thinker, both Rav Cook and Professor Mirsky. Really great conversations there with him and his wife, also a really, really fascinating scholar. Other interesting one I did recently was this book called 101 Treasures of the Jewish National Library, I think it's called, something like that. And so they just did this really amazing renovation of the library, which is within the campus, which is beside the Hebrew University and the, this place, which is, I mean, really a, a library for the Jewish people. That, that's the way they brand it. And that's really what it is. And so they did this big renovation, making the building beautiful. And then they made this really, really beautiful art book where they put together a lot of the different things they have in the collection, religious works, old works, new works, secular, all sorts of things from all around the world and and put together this great book. So I spoke to their head of collections and chatted with her, understood what the book's about. That that was a really fascinating interview. So that's that's my podcast. And then I should say as well that I have the pleasure and privilege of of working on some other podcasts behind the Bima, for example, which is really a nice Jewish podcast. I'll just say that I've really enjoyed working with Rabbi Goldberg and team there, just helping with production and, and getting it out there and share some some really amazing stories and and people to the broader Jewish world and the world
0: at large. I also saw on your website, there's an organization you're involved with called the Habura. So I just wanted to give you a chance to kind of explain what that's about. There might be some of our listeners who aren't familiar with it. The Habura, so it's a sobriety organization. So we'll say that the Habura, we'll you know, make sure we're pronouncing it in the
1: way that, that they've established it. But of course- Thank you, know. you
0: for the correction.
1: So what, what it is, so I'll go back a little bit. So I mentioned that I lived in England for about four years, and when I was there- I have a good friend, his name is Sina Kahan, a really great thinker, a good friend and a great guy. So he got me involved and connected to Rabbi Joseph Dweck, Senior Rabbi Joseph Dweck. The title is not the Chief the Chief Sephardi Rabbi of the UK, but the, the official title is the Senior Rabbi of the Spanish-Portuguese Congregation of the UK. But for all intents and purposes, the broader Sephardi community, at least Spanish-Portuguese community... Has him as their, their senior rabbi, their lead rabbi. And historically, that's actually the the older community than the Ashkenazi one. They've had a head of their community for, for many hundreds of years. And being connected to him, I've had the pleasure just to chat with him, learn from him, a really, really great thinker, a great rabbi, a great person. And he, along with, with Sinna, Avi Garson, and a couple of other people, they started this organization, which is the Khaburah. It's got some great support from the SP UK, from other charitable organizations. And the idea came during the pandemic. A lot, a lot of great things happened during the pandemic. A lot of podcasts and technological things came out during that period. And so in this case with the Chabara, they started very much virtual. Now they've got some in-person events and, and learning opportunities. It's really a way for people to learn. So learn Judaism within a, a classical Sephardic approach. So a Sephardic approach. So think Maimonides, the Rambam, Think Ibn Ezra, e- even uh, Rabbi Kapach, who was a great Yemenite scholar, all sorts of, of, of traditional Sephardi or Sephardi adjacent, you know, maybe Yemenite is not officially technically Sephardic, but within a certain intellectual framework tradition, to be able to learn in that way study in that way. They've got different journals, different books. Their website, if we're doing plugs, is thehabura.com. So it's T-H-E-H-A-B-U-R-A.com. And so there's just a lot of great stuff happening there. They just launched uh, an an initiative called, I think it's called Gateways of Sefarad. So giving the opportunity to yeshiva students, who many of them are studying in Ashkenazi yeshivas, which is is absolutely no problem, but just to give them a taste of of some of their classic Sephardi background and heritage and learning, giving that to them through books for free. And that's an initiative they they just launched. So I'm not Sephardi by birth, but in my heart, I've got some Sephardi spirit and just being involved within that organization is a great privilege. And there's really a lot of great stuff coming out from them.
0: I really love how you're passionate about two things, technology and Judaism, and you have found a way to kind of merge them into your life, into your career. It's just really inspiring to hear that. I want to circle back to technology for one final question before we wrap the interview. You hear so much about the power of AI, and it's something that none of us were really thinking about. Maybe you being in technology, but for the rest of us, it wasn't even on our radar, Chat GPT. We weren't talking about discussing it even a few years ago, and now it feels like it's all you hear about. And associated with that is this idea of, will it be used for good or evil? Is it going to advance our civilization, or what are the risks? So as someone who's working in this field, how do you tackle that kind of question? It's a it's a difficult question. I think, like most answers, and especially
1: with a good Jewish answer, I mean, it depends. There, there's multiple <laughs> answers. It's a machlokas. It's a debate. I think overall, there, there's a lot of both. So I, th- I think there's a lot of ways that we as as humans can use technology, and we'll, we'll, we can speak maybe broadly about technology, and then we can get into AI and ChatGPT, use technology to enhance our lives. So even me personally, I, I've used ChatGPT and technology to create different Jewish learning games, books, just using the technology to, to help with what we need to do. So could I do that with, with more basic technology? Could I do that just by reading regular print books? yes. But allowing me and and the world to do things better and easier using ChatGPT and other technologies, I think it's a great thing. I think there's a lot of ways that we're improving our productivity as as humans, our ability just to work better, to work smarter, to do things we couldn't even have imagined using ChatGPT and other technologies. I I think that that's certainly something which is a great benefit and, and a very positive thing. I mean, I use ChatGPT all the time to do all sorts of different things. It's, I, I use the app, I use the online version, and I'm creating things. Uh, in some ways, I've had a, a mental shift for, for how I use technology just by having this at my fingertips and, and being able to create so much using the, the tool. So th- that's one thing. I, th- I think that the benefits are very large and we, we can't ignore it. There are disadvantages as well. So so I think if we're looking at the side of the disadvantages and the cons, there's things we need to think about as individuals, as companies, as governments, there's all sorts of different levels and layers that we need to think about it. One example is the, the issue of creativity and human output. People are using these tools all the time to write things. Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it's not. It, again, it all depends on the context. And we see different organizations who are who are only using it for outlines. Other ones are have used it to create full articles. There's been a lot of backlash. There, there's serious challenges and, and pushback against that that sort of use. In my job at G2, so one of the things I do is create new categories of software. So one of the new emerging categories is AI content detectors. So tools helping people and organizations detect this sort of content. So we see there's this challenge of people not writing their own things, creating content using just these generative tools. And it it, it could be a challenge because we're we're not necessarily using our full capacity as humans to be creative. Sometimes we're, we're offloading it to the machine. I think in an ideal state, and in some ways, I think this is a pro, we can use these tools in a judicious way, in a smart way to help us be creative. I think one of the things that I'm always thinking about, and I want to write a bit about this, speak more about it at a later date, is there's this idea of of God of the gaps. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the term, but there's this term in philosophy that as science and philosophy developed, they came up with the concept of God of the gaps. At a certain point, the theory goes... God was considered, or in some polytheistic societies, gods are considered to be the creator of, of of weather and of disasters, all these different things. And then they say that as science developed, where is God left? Because we have explanations for meteorites and, and for weather conditions and, and for everything that's happening in the world. And so there's this philosophical notion of God of the gaps. Where is God now that we can explain everything? So... Of course, many answers, there's a whole discussion to be had about how we explain these things within an understanding of God and and, and his abilities. We can bracket that discussion. I think just as there's this idea of God of the gaps, there's also this idea of, of human of the gaps. Because as we have these technologies, which are themselves being able to produce speech, produce text, have some sort of logical thinking, the ability to detect emotions. There are all sorts of different things which you thought were totally human capabilities and what made us human. So the question now, and I don't have an answer and this is something to think about, where is the human when we have these capabilities within the machine? I'm not sure, but that's something which I think about a lot and maybe people have thoughts they'd like to share with me.
0: Well, that's also what people who are afraid of this stuff think. There better be a place for humans in this equation or we're in trouble. Yeah, definitely. So I'm kind of reflecting now on the whole interview, everything you said, and you know, what's really jumping out to me. What I'm most impressed with is just how proactive you were in wanting to become religious and going out there and finding a path for yourself without having a mentor from the beginning, a rabbi from the beginning, someone who was laying it all out for you. It's, it's, it's really amazing. It makes me think a lot in terms of why maybe you ended up in technology, because that's kind of the beginning of your journey was through technology, you found the information you need to kickstart your journey. So maybe that's the original source of where this all came from. I like, I like that. That's uh, something I didn't think about,
1: but I think it's a, a
0: nice explanation for, for that <laughs> journey. So let me just say to the other Matthew Miller, thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you. I appreciate it. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's tachlis com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.